0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have Andrew Demshuk on the show, and we'll be talking with him about his terrific book, The Lost German East, Forced Migration and the Politics of Memory. 1945 to 1970. I know a little bit about this topic largely because we've done several other books about the expulsion of the Germans and what the Germans did after World War II, but I really learned a lot from this book that I did not know, and this was about what the expellees, that's not a very pretty English word, what the expellees did in West Germany, particularly after the expulsion. I knew nothing about it at all, and it turns out that they were quite active, as Andrew will tell us in the course of this interview. So first, let me say, Andrew, thank you for writing the book and welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, Sure, absolutely. So uh, I'm from Michigan originally, and in Michigan, uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, and then I did a master's in history at Marquette University in Milwaukee, then my PhD at University of Illinois. Uh, in Champaign-Urbana, where I had access to 11 million books. In, <laughs> the, it's the largest Dewey Decimal collection in the world yeah. and uh, one of the largest academic libraries in the United States. It was um, yeah. an excellent environment in which to to do the dissertation. I uh, graduated there then uh, with a Ph.D. in history uh, with emphasis on Central and Eastern Europe in uh, June of 2010. And then uh, as of fall 2011, I took a job as assistant professor of history at University of Alabama at
0: Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Well, that's terrific. I've worked in that library with the 11 million books, and by a weird coincidence, I'm from Alabama. Actually, I was born there, but my my sister still lives there. But anyway, that's a a side thing. Um, So tell us why you wrote The Lost German East. Well, that, you know, I have absolutely no personal
1: connection with the former German Eastern territories. Um, Notably, also, uh, Silesia is completely absent from my personal past. (laughs) Silesia uh, is uh, the largest, uh, was the wealthiest uh, territory that Germany lost after World War II. And uh, even though it's not in the title of my uh, book, it was in the title of the dissertation and is... Um, sort of the case study that I focus on in the work. But yeah, I had no uh, personal connection with any of these territories. And then my interest was first peaked uh, as I as I observe in the uh, forward of the book, when I was in the undergraduate classroom at Aquinas College, and my uh, wonderful history mentor there was moving through early German uh, history, history of the uh, German territories, and we got to Prussia, and there was a large map of Prussia that he. Uh, back then, we didn't ha- use uh, PowerPoint; it was the old <laughs> paper map with uh, you know the the dog eared uh, corners and and frayed ends, and and he. he pulled the map over and I saw all these territories uh, in inside of what are now was now mostly Poland and I, I asked the question I said um, so were these all territories that um, that, that were uh, that were German and the the teacher said well I, I mean they were they were part of Germany I said and I mean, so who settled there and what happened to them? And, and all of this was sort of beyond the purview of the discussion. Uh, it, it was sort of this great blank space. And um, when I then uh, looked up statistics and discovered that these territories had comprised uh, one-fourth of Germany's Weimar-era territory, not including territories lost uh, after World War I. I, mean, just the Weimar territory of Germany, um, and then when I discovered that one-fifth of the entire post-war uh, population of East and West Germany was comprised of these expellees, um, I wondered why it was I didn't know about this and what this meant for my understanding of European history. And, uh, you know, it, it was a situation where uh, my mentor there at Aquinas was an early modernist, and I decided I wanted to be an early modernist, and so... I went to Marquette University and I kept telling myself that I wanted to focus on the 17th century then maybe the 18th century soon I was in the 19th century and all along my greatest interest was really the 20th century <laughs> and And this question uh, of the expulsion of Germans and so I, I decided to um, although my master's degree was then in early modern history and I don't regret that at all because it, I think it makes me a much better uh, teacher and um, it broadens my view beyond the 20th century in wonderful ways but I, I was able to um, sort of pick up these threads all the way through and and pursue this project. And it was stimulated, in addition, uh, as a sort of a last comment, by my travels uh, in Germany itself, in Germany and in Poland, because I would um, broach the subject with individuals, and just about nobody in Germany knew anything about this. And um, the, uh, the first trip that I took, To Wrocław, which used to be the German city of Breslau, uh, the second largest city in Prussia, uh, one of the largest cities in Germany, uh, featured uh, in countless descriptions of these lost territories uh, by expellees in the 1950s and 60s. When I went to this large city in what is now Poland, I believe today the fourth largest city in Poland. I went to the top of the cathedral, uh, to the tower there, and ran into one of these German expellees. And I entered into conversation with him in German. And I said, "Um, uh, how wonderful that that we're here in this tower looking at your old city. And he said, well, yes. He says, I've been coming back to visit my former uh, homeland, Heimat in German, um, intimate space where I felt at home, where I was born, uh, since the 1970s. Since the 1970s, I've been coming back to visit this space, and it means so much to me in my life. And um, and I hope to continue to come back. And then, just sort of as a as a default uh, question, I then ask: So then, are you a member of the Landsmannschaft Schlesien, the Homeland Association of Silesia, which is sort of a, a, a right leaning? gigantic um, piece of the federal infrastructure actually here in Germany in the 1960s and 70s uh, and, and periods beforehand and um, associated very much with this, this desire to, re- to reclaim these territories for Germany. I said, oh, are you a member of the Silesian Landsmannschaft? Uh, and he looked at me horrified. And he said, <laughs> "Absolutely not." He says, "I'm a, I'm actually a member of the Socialist Party, <laughs> the SPD, and I don't want anything to do with those right wingers at all."
0: People, yep.
1: exactly. And he said, "Can't you understand?" He said, um, "We could love these spaces we've been from. We could maintain this connection and not be right wing crazies." Mm. And that was that was really. Um, an important moment for me, uh, having had this discussion with him, because I found this sort of mentality repeated time and again
0: uh, over the course of my research. Hmm, that's interesting. I spent some time in Germany myself as a student, and I had a host family, and they were expellees. I didn't know to use that word. They had a big map of East Prussia on the wall. Ah. They sort of explained to me, yeah, we were from here. And I said, oh, it's interesting. But they were very happy where they were, believe me, and they had a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. They were really, I mean, they were very well set up. <laughs> they were really well set up. So I don't think they wanted to go back or anything like that. No. So Where were they uh, settled, if I may ask? Uh, they were just south of Koblenz. Okay. okay. Yeah, just south of Koblenz. I mean, they were right on the Rhine. It's a beautiful place. And you know, gorgeous. Really, Yeah. He had his own uh, Weingut and the whole nine yards. Um, wow. So let's see where to start. Well, uh, I think most of the people that listen to this show know that uh, – after or actually uh, as the Soviets made their way into um, German-speaking territories, let's put it that way, in uh, late 1944 and 45, a lot of Germans fled, and once they took over the area, then there were mass expulsions that uh, lasted about three years until 1948. And they were done with the cooperation of the Allies, uh, that is, all the Allies, not only the Soviets, but with the Americans and the British and the French. So this was a, a, p- a part of The post-war planning that had been done, I I think at Potsdam, I don't remember, but everybody was on board with this, which just shocks me uh, a little bit. And it was one of the largest, I don't know if it's the largest, I hesitate to say that, population transfers in history. Um, Again, I hesitate to call it the largest, but it was big, involving millions and millions of people. And then these territories were given uh, to Poland um, for various reasons we don't need to go into. So this displaced Germans, they, they end up in East Germany and in um, West Germany. So that's the backdrop to this. But let's begin much earlier than that. Uh, I'm an early modernist, so I'm always interested to talk about these things. How did the Germans get to Salesia? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, as, as I said, I had my own early modern background, so that was sort of a, a even though I was supposed to be studying other early modern things, uh, my interest uh, kept coming back to that very question, how How did the Germans end up here? And we actually have to move um, before the early modern period into the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um. So, of course... Uh, as many of your listeners, I'm, I'm sure, are aware, you know, nationalism is a modern phenomenon, and uh, thanks to Benedict Anderson and, and Hobbsbaum and others, we know that um, nations um, are, are often based about, uh, around lingual groups, and they develop their identities, especially in the 19th century, etc. So when we talk about the Middle Ages, we're talking about uh, German speaking peoples with many different dialects in a context in which people are thinking often uh, dynastically, religiously, and uh, among other forms of identity. And it was in that context that the migration of Germans into these eastern territories took place. Uh, the uh, Mongols, um, as uh, some listeners may know, uh advanced all the way across uh Hungary, uh Poland, and um actually fought their westernmost battle inside of Silesia near a town that was called Lignitz, uh today Lignitz. And um in the aftermath of this Mongol advance that was um fought back then by uh German and Polish speaking uh knights Uh, all thinking in feudal terms, um, the territories were relatively depopulated. And the Polish uh, uh, dukes and others who were um, administrating these territories uh, decided that it was not a bad thing to invite uh, people from the West to come in and settle and improve economic uh, circumstances. And so it was in this context then that many uh, Germans began to then uh, move uh, eastward from uh, overpopulated areas uh, in the west um one of these areas actually being uh, where i am right now in swabia in southwestern uh germany uh where you had uh, many families that would keep dividing the family plot smaller and smaller and smaller until soon you've inherited basically one acre and you're supposed to live off of this. So, you know, word spreads around that you can move to these areas of the east and, and set up camp. And so uh, it is for this reason that many, many uh, towns all across uh, these uh, territories of Silesia, of Pomerania, uh, have towns that were constructed then in the uh, 13th century, uh, often uh, with a uh, very, what we would consider modern uh, grid uh, street layout, with the with the town hall in the center, and you have trade routes then that begin spreading from the core of the Holy Roman Empire uh, of the German nation then eastward uh, into Poland. Uh, even Krakow itself had a large uh, German minority for a time, and then in a somewhat different. Uh, trend You have the Teutonic Knights, the various uh, orders uh, in the in, in what is now East Prussia, West Prussia, also establishing sort of their own. Uh, domains. So the Germans then um, these German-speaking individuals then interact with with uh, the Polish populations. Many of these German-speaking peoples ultimately begin speaking Slavic dialects. Uh, other times, sl- people with Slavic dialects begin speaking um, German, uh, Germanic languages, and you have sort of this great um, mixing that then
0: occurs. And then, uh, so uh, bring us up to speed. What happens uh, with? Um <laughs> with unification I almost called it reunification with yeah, unification yeah. where does where does uh Shlonsk, it certainly is, is it called now where does it end up
1: yeah so um Silesia uh Shlonsk in Poland uh, Silesian in german Silesia was always a, a very contested territory because um it is An extremely uh, fertile region in the Oder Valley. Um, All of these towns had been founded there. And then even the the first traces of of industrialization began to take root there. Uh, Silesia had been part of the Habsburg Empire, but was taken by Prussia in sort of its advance onto the stage as a European great power in a series of three wars in the 18th century. So that uh, Silesia was then uh, a core component of Prussia all the way through the Napoleonic Wars and into the 19th century with the unification of Germany. And it's really fascinating as sort of a, a quick aside, the expellees after the Second World War uh, never refer to themselves as Prussians. <laughs> Ever. They, they, they are Silesians. They are Pomeranians. They are Lower Silesians, Upper Silesians, uh, East Prussians, West Prussians, uh, whatever kind of <clears throat> designation you can imagine, all the way down to the most intimate local level. But they were never Prussians. Mm-hmm. I have never, never seen that designation, which is fascinating because, um, of course, the Rhineland was also technically part of Prussia, but it had never been content. As a part of Prussia, it often resisted Prussian rule uh, throughout the nineteenth uh, uh, century, but these territories were had a rather um, you know they were an integral part of Prussia you had statues of Frederick the Great and the various Kaisers uh, all throughout the various cities and and yet this Prussian identity was um, not something that they wanted to attach uh, themselves to after the end of the Third Reich.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it at this point that uh, people in Silesia start to think of themselves as, as, as Germans after the unification, or or is that tenuous to say that?
1: Um, they thought of themselves as Germans, actually, at about the same time that individuals did across much of the uh, the rest of Germany, really with the this uh, growth of a... Um, pan-German identity uh, throughout the 19th century. And it's intriguing because this identity um, included uh, Jews as well. Mm Uh, the city of Breslau was home to the second largest Jewish population uh, in Prussia, uh, the largest of course being Berlin. And um, as, as Til von Roden has uh, explored in his excellent book on the, the Jews of Breslau, of course, uh, these individuals often were, because of their, uh, their wealth, uh, some of them, um, were part of this uh, three-tiered voting system that, that gave them a significant amount of political influence. And uh, also, uh, you have uh, Jewish merchants, Jewish entrepreneurs helping to finance the creation of monuments celebrating the unification of Germany by the Prussia, the, ki- the uh, kings of Prussia, uh, in the ni- through the nineteenth century after the uh, unification. So, mm-hmm. it's, there's this pan-German um, uh, sort of. Uh, um, Really, succession after the uh, absorption of Prussia into the new unified German state. Mm-hmm. Uh- Mm -hmm. So, which is interesting because Prussia had been a largely statist identity before the unification of Germany it was supposed to be uh, including uh, for instance the Polish population as well and so you have other uh, events taking place in the 19th century notably the Kulturkampf of the 1870s where Polish populations in the Poznan and West Prussia region begin to feel like they're not part of um, this new rising German identity but you don't really find that um, so much inside of um, uh, of these German-speaking populations,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: the biggest uh, the biggest uh, region of uh, contestation actually uh, after the First World War is Upper Silesia, especially the industrial region of Upper Silesia, which was the second largest industrial region in Europe in continental Europe, uh, so non-British Europe outside of the Ruhr area. Hmm. By the end of the first – by the First World War. So it was uh, an obvious war prize that the French wanted to see um, uh, uh, taken from uh, Germany and given to Poland, of course, to weaken Germany, understandably, after the Germans had ravaged so much of eastern France. And, um, and so individuals in Upper Silesia, which is very different from Lower Silesia, Upper Silesia, which confusingly is in the south, um, yeah. <laughs> much, like, much like Upper Bavaria, right? The further south you go, the more up you are. So yeah. uh, Upper Silesia, further in the south and in the east, um, they actually had a vote in 1921, uh, do you want to be German? Or Polish. You want to be part of Germany or Poland, and the individuals in this region, many of them were, were bilingual. Uh, you had uh, a local dialect, which the Germans called Wasserpolnisch (water Polish). Doesn't not a very uh, not a very salutary term. Uh, now we try to be politically correct and we call it Schlanzakish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this local uh, dialect uh, was uh, in many ways the basis of its own identity, which is very much Catholic regional. Uh, identity And these individuals often then broke down by German or Polish uh, affiliation based upon how the violence worked out in the midst of this um, 1921 um, plebiscite in Upper Silesia. I mean, my general feeling is that if a uh, German Freikorps came through and burned down your house and killed your wife, you're opposed. <laughs> and and if these Polish brigands uh, that are crossing the border, armed by France, come in and burn down your house and kill your wife, then you're a German. And it is no coincidence in many ways. Then that it is in Upper Silesia that the Second World War began um, in in Gleiwitz, where the Nazis staged a fake Polish assault on German territory in Upper Silesia. Uh, the first victim of the Second World War was actually. Um, a uh, Polish um, uh, individual that they uh, gave lethal injection to and and fired bullets at uh, outside of this station in a Polish uniform to sort of provide a corpse of a Polish brigand, right, who who had tried to Across the border, and so it is in Upper Silesia, this contested space, that we see the war uh, then break out um, under uh, Nazi rule. Then Upper Silesia is not only reunified in the borders of uh, the Kaiserreich of the uh, pre World War One Germany, but also expanded to include such territories as Auschwitz, mm-hmm. which then, for a brief period, uh, is also uh, a part of Silesia. Oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yes. I, yeah. I didn't yeah. Know that. So. Um, Were the Nazis particularly popular in Silesia?
1: Uh, That varied, actually. Um, The Nazis were notoriously uh, popular uh, in uh, Pomerania, for instance, or in Brandenburg. But when you moved into Silesia, uh, it it shifted, especially in Upper Silesia. The Catholic Center Party and the Socialist Parties tended to retain the upper hand. Uh, But the more you moved into Lower Silesia, then the more... Uh, the more individuals uh, voted, uh, tended to vote for the Nazis.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, World War Two is fought. The Germans lose. The expulsions take place, and you end up with a very large number of Silesians. Um, um, well, <laughs> you end up with a very large number of Silesians dead, and yes. you end up with a very large number of Silesians in uh, East and West Germany. Can you talk a little bit about that population, how large it was relative to the to the to the two states, and uh, its its composition, uh, sort of in terms of gender and and age and that and, and that kind of thing?
1: Absolutely, uh, and these are all really important statistics to try to um, to first to try to imagine, and also to represent. Uh, remember their problematic nature. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this was a, a chaotic time. I mean, the the Nazis forbade people to flee, and of course, continue to lie about the end victory that was at hand, so that the Russians, uh, the Soviets, I'm sorry, as they um, rapidly advanced in the Vistula uh, assaults of January 1945, um, they were literally overrunning whole German uh, towns and villages that that were still populated uh, or or people were fleeing. And it was a very, very cold winter as well. So individuals on an instant's notice suddenly leaving their homes uh, locking the door, right, and assuming that you're going to come back, right? You do all the things, mm-hmm. you lock the door, turn off the stove, right, and you presume that you'll be coming back. And this, it's important to emphasize, is thus the, the first um, stage in what we uh, what we typically call the flight and expulsion of Germans from, um, from these territories. The flight, the wild flight uh, is actually not even so much an organized expulsion as oh no, the Soviets are coming, we've been hearing all about them for the longest time, in Nazi propaganda, they're uh, barbarians, and they're going to kill us all. And sometimes also the thought that, yes, and I also sort of know what Uncle Siegfried was doing, um, you know, in in Russia, we kind of have a sense, right? Um, The rapidity with which people are fleeing is also in some ways revealing maybe something about what they may have also known, right? Uh, But um, as they are fleeing, then... um, the uh, power, Britain, United States, and the Soviet Union are meeting in various conferences. Uh, first, uh, there was the Tehran Conference, then the Yalta Conference, and then the Potsdam Conference. The Yalta Conference uh, takes place before the Soviet advance, and it was at Yalta, really, that. Um, that Stalin um, was able to get uh, basically everything that he wanted uh, in Eastern Europe from Roosevelt and Churchill. Uh, the, the story goes that they were actually drawing borders in these territories with matchsticks on a large Russian map. And it has been revealed on a map that was recently found in an archive in Russia that um, the oder Nysa border that was supposed to be established between Poland and uh, Germany um, was... Uh, Quite confusing um, in these conferences, because there are two Nysa rivers. There's the Lusatian Nysa River, which is the current border between Poland and and Germany, and will hopefully always remain the border now, uh, and the Glatzer Nysa, which is much, much further to the east. And Stalin had originally intended the border to be the Oder and Glatzer River, which would have meant that about half of Silesia would have remained inside of Germany, and over two million Germans would not have been expelled.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And... um, and it's interesting because as soon as Stalin realized that Churchill and Roosevelt didn't know the difference between the two rivers and frankly didn't care, he even <laughs> insisted on the other river and, and, and got everything that he wanted. And we have to also remember the context of the time. Uh, the Germans were uh, extremely unpopular for obvious reasons. Uh, the Western allies were currently uh, firebombing many German cities, which are, is also questionable um, – questionable merit, and the uh, obsession by the American administration was to maintain the alliance with the Soviet Union so that the Soviets would join in the war with Japan. Mm -hmm. So it's in this context that finally uh, this Yalta agreement is uh, drawn up. Uh, A bit chilling, though, as well, that Stalin met with Churchill and Roosevelt at Yalta uh, just literally uh, uh, weeks, uh, not even weeks, days after... um, forcibly expelling all of the Crimean Tatars from the Crimea. Stalin was an, an expert at moving populations, um, before the Nazis even uh, were doing it, um, moving them in in uh, boxcars uh, to other territories, and uh, not extermination, but forced migration. And uh, this forced migration of the Crimean Tatars meant that the Crimea was particularly devastated, depleted of people, and it was in this context, this, this um, very... Uh, uh, Sad landscape um, of ethnic cleansing that uh, Churchill and Roosevelt uh, figured that well the Germans did all of this and uh, and were especially upset with them right now right and of course the Germans were responsible for the uh, brutal brutal attack uh, in the Crimea and across the Soviet Union but it was in the face of this ethnic cleansing that they that this conference took place so then Potsdam summer of 1945 um, the Western powers then Truman and Attlee uh, succeeding um, Roosevelt and Churchill. Churchill, uh, agree with Stalin then to um, move the remaining Germans in these eastern territories in a, quote, uh, orderly and humane manner, which uh, anyone who studied ethnic cleansing knows there is no such thing as an orderly and humane movement of peoples when – Questions of property are thrown up in the air in the midst of um, of this sort of upheaval. You have uh, you'll have rape and pillage and uh, mass destruction and loss. It's just a a quantity a quality of ethnic cleansing that, of course, the Nazis had already been executing across Eastern Europe. A uh, context that must never be forgotten when we're talking about um, about this. <clears throat> so these expellees um, range in their number. Um, based upon what book you read. I've seen uh, as much as 4 million uh, expellees uh, die in the midst of the expulsions. I've seen as little as a few hundred thousand. The most generally accepted statistic is something along the lines of about um, somewhere approaching 2 million expellees uh, died in the midst of these expulsions. And then, again, numbers vary, but circa 12 million then uh, expellees made it into um, the uh, occupation zones, the British, French, American and Soviet occupation zones that formed what then ultimately largely became the, the Germany that we know uh, today. And um, they came uh often in in rather um, scattered groups. It was not the case that, say, a village might just simply find itself uh, in the West because some of the people in the village had fled earlier, some were expelled later. Some individuals who fled sought to return back to their villages and then were expelled. You did have that case, too, because people did never assume that this this huge piece of territory would be lost. They they assumed, well, my farm uh, is... Um, going to need the, the the seeds need to be sowed. I have to get everything going. It's springtime, so people actually went back, often sowed the crop, uh, and then left, and the poles harvested it after they had already fled in the in the uh, in the winter. Um, the general trend, though, was that at least at first, uh, a lot of Silesians ended up in Saxony, uh, in what would become the Soviet zone, because it's of course on the border, directly adjacent uh to Silesia uh many Silesians also ended up in the west in uh, in Lower Saxony North Rhine uh, Westphalia Hesse uh, in, in those areas uh many East Prussians uh and ended up in Schleswig-Holstein um because they fled there on boats uh and uh many sudeten germans uh ended up in uh bavaria actually often and saxony so there were attempts to redistribute these populations but you did have cases where um, where whole uh cities devastated in the war uh in the west became largely repopulated by expellees. And there were some cities that actually were constructed basically out of nothing to house uh, the expellees, Uh, such as um, the city of Stadt. uh, There's a city uh, near Marburg um, that is called um, Schwalmstadt, next to Treize. And Schwalmstadt was basically constructed out of almost nothing after World War II as a place to house uh, these expellees. Other times, whole new districts would emerge in these cities, often uh, high rise areas, where um, later, when the expellees became more prosperous, uh, because the expellees were an important workforce in the economic miracle in West Germany, many of the expellees moved out to nicer houses. And these former expellee high rise areas are now where you'll find your Turkish populations, your Russian. German populations and other groups that are now um, more on the fringes of society, oftentimes.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So, just to get this out of the way, because I learned something else that the, I, I did not know that the that the West German government uh, did not, um, um, what does one say, accept the territorial settlement of? I guess it's 1948. Is that right? Um, I mean, there and was post-war actually, total ter- ter- territorial settlement yeah. until 1970. Whatever. What, what did the Allies say about the post-war disposition of Germany? How what was it going to look like? Was there an agreement like, okay, it's going to look like this, and Silesia's is not going to be part of it? And so we, they put their stamp on that, and they said, that's it
1: yeah that's actually that's a that's a really uh, interesting story um, and I think we can sort of follow it along in some ways by also looking at Winston, Winston Churchill Winston Churchill uh, blamed Prussia for World <laughs> War II and wanted Prussia destroyed right and and, and Churchill remember uh, he's he's a British imperialist so he's been carving up Africa and China and other areas. For much of his existence, and now you're carving up Germany and, and eliminating Prussia. It's just another map, right? And you mm-hmm. you you carve it up. That's a bit crass, but um, Churchill uh, helps to dismember Germany, and they create this uh, agreement at Potsdam that is then the basis for the legal definition of the border. But the final border delineation is supposed to be determined at a peace conference. The peace conference that was supposed to involve all of the Allies at the end of the war. A peace conference that never took place. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, the Potsdam Agreement of 1945 was always held up as this sort of de facto agreement that was supposed to determine that the Oder isotera rivers were the uh, border. But um, as you'll see in so many atlases in school books all the way through the 1960s in West Germany, these territories were always stated as under Polish administration because officially, by legal definitions, they're being administrated by Poland until a peace settlement can um, determine what the final border delineation should look like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this, this, this sort of um, legal limbo uh, in the West was not mirrored in the East East Germany recognized the Oder-Neisse border basically at gunpoint from the Soviets uh, in 1950 in the Treaty of Gerlands. And it was fascinating because when you look at post-war politics in Poland and in East Germany and in West Germany, this huge swathe of territory with all of its resources was always a, a, a huge question that could determine... Also, the popular uh, support and legitimacy for a government. Um, The Polish government was not just communist, but really communist nationalist. They adopted all of the right-wing nationalist platforms of the interwar period, um, calling for territorial um, annexations in Germany, actually, um, as a way to try to gain Uh, legitimacy from a local population that that didn't like them, that Poles didn't generally like communism. And so, uh, and, and actually, in some ways, it, it, always, it worked out for the Polish government quite well. You're not allowed to talk about a huge piece of territory Poland lost to the Soviet Union uh, during the Second World War. But we can talk about these so-called recovered territories, the Ziemia Odziskana, uh, that, that after an 800-year German occupation have now been recovered by Poland and are now part of an eternal, uh, eternalized Polish um, <clears throat> nation. Right. Uh, all coming from a communist government. Really fascinating because that, that's hardcore uh, national dialogue. East Germany didn't have that. East Germany has to somehow uh, convince its population uh, at first one quarter of which comes from these eastern territories that, you know what, um, uh, the border is permanent, everyone. And not only is it permanent, it's our new friendship border. It's the friendship border with our friends, our fellow socialists, the Poles, which the, the German uh, East Germans didn't buy at all. Um, and so I, I've always theorized that it may have been one of the bases for the 1953 revolution against the East German government that you have all these expellees who are living uh, – they weren't called expellees. Uh, they were called um, resettlers, Umsiedler in East Germany at first, and then later new citizens, Neuburger, and then they didn't have a name at all because they're supposed to be fully integrated by 1950, which of course isn't the case. But again, amid all this propaganda, these um, – Uh, The the regime has to sign the Treaty of Görlitz in 1950 and recognize the border, which is a huge blow, uh, destroying basically any remaining chance that the East German regime will ever have any popular legitimacy. And so in West Germany, which is the context that I'm looking at, um, which is supposed to be a democracy, my question was then, um, how is it? Uh, in this turbulent uh, post war context, this turbulent post war climate with all these refugees everywhere, that uh, how is it that all of these expellees were um, integrated ultimately
0: and weren't sitting on their suitcases uh, waiting to go back to these territories that they'd lost? Mm-hmm. So once the uh, expellees get there and they get set up, uh, I guess by the Allies at first and then by the uh, West German government, um, they organize themselves. Uh, into these uh, Landsmannschaften, these sort of, I don't know, what do you call that, how do you translate that, these things?
1: Yeah, Uh, Regional Association, Uh, Land
0: Association. Sure, yeah, I mean, yes, right. It doesn't really
1: translate. No, we
0: don't have anything quite like that in the United States, at least, you know, we are, no, we just don't have anything like that. Uh, (laughs) So, in any event, they organize themselves into groups, and they're big groups, and they're political groups, and they have uh, their own publications, Oh yeah. They have meetings and they have celebrations. Can you talk a little bit about the development of those? Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah.
1: So the first one of the first most basic needs for ex- these expellees in the post immediate aftermath of their uh, flight and expulsion was to find other family members, other relatives. And very quickly, the old town mayor, the old uh, village clerk, the old newspaper editor, started to publish lists of names and addresses to help people find each other. Um, Some of the old uh, leaders from the old um, towns and villages started to try to agitate for better living conditions um, and often also for the right to return to these lost territories. After the formation of West Germany in 1949, it then became legal for people to start um, associate, associating politically. Before that, under uh, American, French, and British occupation, it was illegal to form political associations. And so, again, you have these, these local groups. We're just cultural groups. We're just refugee groups trying to find each other or religious groups, the old town pastor, the old town priest, would uh, send out religious flyers that were also very much devoted to these lost homeland um, homeland spaces. And <clears throat> if I could um, put in a, put out an historiographic aside, uh, as I started to read about um, these West German associations, uh, I was fascinated to find. Um, That the general assumption was that anyone who associated with these groups or went to these giant rallies they'd put together uh, or commemorated the lost homeland, that they were generally um, revanchist, that they were generally interested in uh, going back, taking back the lost territories and reestablishing Germany in its 1937 borders, which was the official uh, position of the West German government. And you had... Um, leaders. Uh, The the Federal Minister for Expellees, Theodor Oberländer, was a notorious war criminal who butchered uh, thousands of people in the Ukraine during the war. He was a... You had a number of of, um, uh, old Nazis who took up positions in these homeland associations. You had... um, historians, scholars who had worked closely with the Third Reich and may not have been party members, all of them, but had created these claims to vast areas of Eastern Europe for the Nazi Reich. Now they're saying, well, now we're putting forth claims for these lost German territories. It was very easy to stop talking about the um, the Untermenschen of Eastern Europe and start talking about the scary, dangerous Bolsheviks. Uh, and, and, and it was a very easy um, transition that a number of scholars have looked at. <clears throat> and so... Any association with these cultural groups, with these political groups, was supposed to mean that you really did want this territory back, that you were wedded to the political platform, and um, and generally those were your bad expellees, and your good expellees would be those uh, who uh, just simply accepted the material well-being they were all finding in the West and accepted the Cold War status quo and just integrated, and this. Material explanation, while important, uh, just simply can't, uh, I think, get at the core of what was happening, um, not least because in 1952, the so-called uh, equalization of burdens um, uh, program put forth by the West German government in which people who didn't lose as much um, gave Money in a larger um, uh, sum to the state to be distributed among expellees or people who are bombed out. The expellees—you have to imagine—you lost your your farm that your family was at for hundreds of years, or you lost a really nice villa. Some of these are nobles, right? You lost your villa, you lost your family estate uh, in Silesia, and now you're getting a check for some paltry sum, and you're living in a high up. Uh, <laughs> if you're lucky, in a high rise that's been built for you. If you're unlucky, you're living in barracks at an old concentration camp, right? I mean. Dachau was a leading place where expellees settled at first after the war. You're hardly going to feel like you're materially fulfilled, right? <clears throat> and, and you know, the economic miracle, I mean, in the mid-1950s, that's a long ways away, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with the, the flight and expulsion in the mid-40s. What I started to find then when I was looking, I started to read these Heimat newspapers that were widely distributed, often supported by these right-wing groups, and I found that If you flipped past the cover page that was usually some horrible incendiary political claim for the lost territories, Um, if you flipped to page three, four, or five, you started to find these poems, these odes to the Heimat, these imaginary journeys where they would return back. And I started to find this language uh, in these accounts, in these Heimat papers, um, and, in, uh, and memoirs that I started to look at and such, and interviews, of course, but that's problematic because it's contemporary. But in memoirs and materials from the time, from the even the late 40s, uh, also in the 1950s and, of course, 60s, people were already... Uh, accepting the loss of these territories often because they were thinking about them so much, because they were going to these homeland associations. Because just because you go to a a, a giant rally that has this political goal doesn't mean that you agree with the political goal. Uh, when expellees would go to these giant rallies, they often skipped the opening speech by the, the opening political speech, uh, or during the political speech they'd go over and talk to their friends because they were much more interested in seeing uh, you know, Heinz. From uh, Liegnitz again that i haven 't seen him in years and talking about the old town, uh, or in seeing slideshows of what the old Heimat used to look like, um, hearing about uh, stories of people who had traveled back and seen it, this was of much more importance to them than hearing these uh, these political speeches and this was the basis then for this process of dealing with loss that i uh, that I observed um, as a widespread phenomenon
0: mm-hmm. what was the position the official position of the major German political parties, and I I don't even remember what they were. The the SPD must have still been there. I don't know about the CDU. I mean, who, who, Adenauer, what party was he a member Mm -hmm. of? I don't remember, but what what did they say? Uh, Well, it's
1: interesting. Uh, Konrad Adenauer, who um, was the leading German uh, political figure from the foundation of of West Germany all the way through into the 1960s, Um, Adenauer was from the Rhineland, and it was... Largely due to his influence that the capital uh, was in Bonn, uh, in the Rhineland, not far from his house. He, he, he hated – it's, it's yes, yeah, he, he wanted Germany to be in the west. He hated Prussia. Uh, being from the Rhineland, he saw Prussia as sort of an outside occupier. And his famous line was that Europe ends on the Elbe River. Europa ended on the Elbe. In the interwar period as mayor of Cologne, uh, he had been obsessed with establishing good relations with France. He had believed that a westward orientation for uh, interwar Germany would be the best possible means of uh, a successful foreign policy. So he really, um, after his own persecution by the Nazis, he kind of came back and became chancellor and continued to pursue this obsession with westward uh, rapprochement and, you know, with his back sort of facing um, the east. Um, now, he, being a good politician, he uh, he continued, of course, to give speeches that were in support of the 1937 borders and, and expelli uh, uh, political claims and such. So he, he paid lip service. <clears throat> but it's been pretty well documented that in private he had very little interest in these lost territories, um, which is interesting because... Um, the SPD's leader uh, Kurt Schumacher uh, actually was very much in favor of um, reestablishing uh, some of the control of the territories because he was from West Prussia. He was actually from these lost territories, but Schumacher had suffered uh, under the Nazis horribly and died really of his um, uh, medical complications from um, from from uh, what happened, and the the SPD never really. Was able to rally any kind of response then against the the CDU, the the, the um, successor to the Catholic Center Party, the Christian Democratic Party, or the Christian Socialist Party in Bavaria, um, the, the until the 1960s really, with the generational um, shifts and uh, changing um, cultural priorities.
0: So, uh, <laughs> I guess one question that occurs to me, and I think probably to the listeners, is that did any sane person think that the uh, uh, the West Germans or the Germans in general were ever going to get these? territories back in any way?
1: Well, that's why I chose Silesia, because if any of these territories was a realistic objective, it was Silesia, right? I mean, East Prussia, for heaven's sake, it's been divided between the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and Poland. You're you're never going to get, you're not You're not going to get it back, right? And Or Danzig, right? Pomerania is not really worth very much, and the Sudetenland was not part of interwar Germany. But Silesia, well, it... It, it directly abuts um, East German territory. Of course, there's no common border between West Germany and any of these uh, pre, um, you know, these the, the so called 1937 uh, territories. Um, <clears throat> but if any territory was going to be realistic, Uh, As a as a claim, uh, it would be uh, it it would actually be Silesia. So that was a and then of course with three million Germans having been expelled from uh, having fled or expelled from Silesia, uh, and with it being this this rich industrial territory, agricultural territory, it would also be the first priority for recovery. So that was why a big reason I chose Silesia, and then I started to look at, at rhetoric and again officially. The SPD, the CDU, the FDP, um, basically all of your mainstream parties are maintaining this lip service to the nineteen thirty seven territories. And yeah, in school books, in 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 instruction, you were continuing to get this rhetoric. This is all part of Germany. I mean, nineteen 19- 1968, 1969, it's still in school instruction, it's still on the school maps. These territories are still under Polish or Soviet uh, administration. Even Danzig, the free city of Danzig, uh, the Polish port of Gdańsk now, uh, which was not part of interwar Germany but was a free territory, free independent city, under League of Nations mandate, uh, was under Polish administration on these maps. Uh So you have the official view that, of course, we're going to get all of these territories back. Among the expelli groups, um, I think a lot of them did fervently believe that some of these territories could be recovered. You start to see wacky maps coming out in which they're 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 drawing um, Germany as the, the the sinews of a person, or Germany surrounded by a lock with a key and, and you know triple divided. You know East East Germany uh, was actually the reference they would use for these Oder Neisse territories, and what we think of as East Germany, Communist East Germany, was Mitteldeutschland, Central Germany. Mm. And then West Germany, and so this this rhetoric maintains, but but really, I mean, among your average Bavaria, your average uh, Lower Saxon, um, nobody, I mean, there's really not even that much interest in these territories, uh, and there's a, a recognition of this. Um, at the government level, it's, it's really the failure, uh, and, uh, for many of the expellees too, of the Nazi ideal of the Volksgemeinschaft, of the national community of the, of the German folk, because you, you get these Silesians that show up in the West and they're not welcomed and their dialect is seen as somehow Slavic or other or, you know, not part of the German folk, right? And, um, and and then there's this indifference that arises uh in in bavaria or or hesse about these populations and their culture uh so that the west German government actually seeks in the the, the uh the bundes uh, uh was that the the um, uh, 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 the, the federal administration for uh, gesamt deutsche fragen uh, all german questions is 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 pursuing this all German question of these lost German territories and East Germany, trying to create through propaganda awareness that you know uh, we had great German minds, great German explorers, German scholars who came from these eastern territories. We all know that, of course, Copernicus was this great German national from uh, from Torun in West Prussia, and and that you know he he was in East Prussia for a while, and he's this great important Prussian, which is absurd, of course, because Copernicus, uh, it's as absurd as the claim now in Poland that Copernicus was was Polish because Copernicus uh, was writing largely in Latin and, and considered himself part of this um, you know early modern uh, mm-hmm. scientific community right he 's not thinking of himself as German or Polish, but you get the sort of propaganda coming out to create the sense that these are important lost german areas, and of course because so many of the Jews from Breslau had been uh, important nobel prize winners and such, suddenly these Jews become upstanding germans right mm. that that speak to the German heritage in these areas but the west Germans they don 't really care, and the expellees uh themselves um their interest in the lost territories don't have to do with these political objectives. And even in the late 40s, they're already um, thinking of the lost homeland as a, as a way to try to, to move forward, really, with their new life in the West as a way of, of, of uh, living off of their memories.
0: Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you point out in the book that most of these, many of these, I don't know, expellees uh, developed a kind of romantic, uh, well, a nostalgia for the Heimat In the East. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they wrote poems about it and they wrote and actually they had books about it. And oh, yeah. Yeah. But then this was um, countered in a way by another image of the Lost East. And that is the Lost East under Polish administration. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this is really the my uh, the core of my um, theoretical intervention, and that is the these two images of Heimat that you as you uh, identify the Heimat of memory being the one side uh, and the Heimat transformed on the other. The Heimat of memory uh, is this we could say um, sort of technicolor image of the Heimat that emerges in their memories where it was always. Uh, sunny and beautiful in the Heimat, everything was clean. Everything was so very, very German. Um, Jews don't usually appear in these narrations, nor does the Polish border or, or any uh, individuals who weren't German. Um, the 1930s suddenly emerge as the most wonderful era in <laughs> German history uh, because the Nazis are not part of it. Uh, it's it's an era where we get electricity and we get running water, and often tied in with modernity. This is this idea that. Heimat has to be this countryside idyll. Oftentimes, Heimat could be a big city like Breslau, and you know, Heimat is streetcars or Heimat is factories. Heimat is uh, is somehow tied to this uh, eternal but ever evolving, wonderful idyllic homeland that suddenly dies and is buried in 1945. All of a sudden, out of the blue, and we don't know why, so goes the narration, um, the the Soviet Huns arrived, and and the the Poles, and, and we're not sure why they would be so upset with Germans in 1945, but they just seem to be, and they overrun and destroy, then, this Heimat of memory, making it the Heimat transformed, which is just as much of an imagined place that had never existed. The Heimat transformed is seen then as uh, inherently decayed, dirty, uh, neglected. The German language has lots and lots of words for when things are run down nasty (laughs) and and rotting. And and they use all of them uh, to describe this horrible, horrible image. And and it's often tied in with racial terms, very nasty terms. The, uh, The idea that there are now suddenly there are gypsies everywhere or Mongols everywhere um the uh, idea of uh, Polish ineptitude in in inability to manage anything uh, called polnische wirtschaft in German history is often applied these are not these are not nice pictures right these are not things that we uh that we that we as historians you know want, want to see our subjects imagining right this on the one hand idealization of what was essentially the Third Reich, uh and periods beforehand and then this this re- retention of often uh, negative racial associations uh, with Eastern Europe. But as scholars, we also seek to say, well, then what kind of motivating force do these images have? And what I find is that uh, more and more ger- these expellees then wanted to reside in memories. They wanted to live in these, uh, imagined beautiful, uh, spaces that are somewhat loosely derived from what had actually been in their, in their old Heimat. Um, and they were increasingly alienated by the sense that this Heimat transformed, this negative image of Heimat was ubiquitous and, uh, impossible to remove, uh, in these former eastern areas. And, and actually, uh, the, obvious presence of Polish settlers uh, in these eastern territories was also seen as sort of this uh, contribution to the uh, continued decay or decline of these areas. But of course, implicit is always, well, if we go back, these Poles will be there, right? Or are they going to be expelled? Or what will happen? They don't want to talk about that. Only rarely did some of these uh, expellees, especially expellee leaders, even dare to talk about what they'd do with the Poles if they ever went back. And it was always very controversial. And so that that's The basic image of the uh, the basic trend with these two images, and with time, even in the nineteen late forties, to say nothing of the fifties and sixties, the separation between these two images becomes um, so vast that very few expellees uh, had any desire to to go back. They wanted to live in their memories and um, this does not mean that they were happy with what happened to them. It doesn't mean that they ever really even accepted uh, the book, the borders. I mean, in their mind, the 1937 borders still exist as much as this time out of memory still exists, but it's all in this fantasy realm that cannot connect with the reality in which the world that they had known could never come back.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I've a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. The, um, I guess this question is a little bit critical. It's not critical, but I, I'm afraid I, I don't want it to be read the wrong way. Mm, now, I, I would definitely agree with you that this idealized version of the 1930s in uh, Silesia is sort of silly because the Nazis were in the picture. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it, what did Silesia look like in 1950? Mm-hmm. I mean, was it really quite a mess? I mean, I don't oh, know. Ab- I mean, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no. I mean, it was it was a it was a total mess. Um,
1: if you look at the city of uh, Breslau, to, to, to go back to the, the, the metropole, um, in at the time of the uh, attempt on Hitler's life in June of 1944, uh, Breslau, uh, as well as Dresden, uh, for that matter, were still perfectly intact. They were untouched by the war. So you had this city of... Um, Hundreds of thousands of people—you know—at this point, is swollen actually by people who are fleeing from destroyed cities in the West. So you have a lot of people who've, who've sought shelter in Silesia as well, from Hamburg or, or Munich, and they. So you have the city that traditionally is, is, is about, you know, six hundred and fifty thousand people now, even bigger, um, undestroyed, and it was the insane attempt by the Nazis to defend Breslau to the very last. In fact, Breslau surrendered after Berlin uh in in the uh final um uh, months uh, and weeks of the war that Breslau was al- almost uh totally destroyed very very badly damaged um by uh Soviet artillery it was called the Stalingrad on the Oder because it was often fought house to house so the poles inherit this uh devastated city and you have to imagine uh, little things that happen in the midst of ethnic cleansing that we don't think about. <clears throat> they don't know where the water lines run. Mm-hmm. They don't know where the sa- sewer lines are. They don't know how the power grid works. And sometimes the Germans, with that knowledge, had already fled, or they accidentally expelled them. I mean, they don't know. Um, occasionally, some of the people who knew about this stuff were retained, sometimes into the 1950s, to help rebuild the city. But you're supposed to somehow repopulate this horribly uh, devastated um, city. Other places uh, which were not damaged in the war <clears throat> are um, empty oftentimes or largely empty because the Poles just don't have enough people uh, to, to fill them. Uh, and of course, not only because Poland um, didn't, have, it didn't have as large of a, of a population as Germany, but uh, the, the Nazis had murdered so many Poles. Uh, and of course, so many uh, Polish Jews that Poland just simply didn't have the population to um, to inhabit some of these places. And the Poles didn't honestly think they'd keep the territory. There were cases where Poles uh, crossed the boor- the old border from central Poland into Silesia, disassembled whole houses, trucked them back into a Poznan area and rebuilt them because they figured the Nazis are, are the Nazis the Germans the fascists right they're going to come back mm-hmm. and um, and so in this you, you see towns that were not damaged uh, decaying you see a town that um, maybe the Soviets set fire to um, that that was not repaired in a timely manner and I'll tell you I, I really appreciate the need to keep uh, the roof of a house uh, intact, right? Uh, first, first order of business for the house always keep the roof mm-hmm. patched, right? Because um, as soon as um, leaks begin to develop from the roof of one of these houses, or as soon as the pipes freeze, um, as soon as um, vermin begin to get in, the dec- house can decay with incredible speed. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, I mean, that these, these territories looked um, oftentimes pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. It was unequal. It was unequal. If you took a place like Glogau uh, on the Oder, um, Glogau was 97% destroyed. Because it was also a, a fortress city. I mean, there was nothing, it wasn't really rebuilt until uh, the 60s and 70s uh, by Poland. Grunberg, just a little ways away, the Polish city of Zielonogura was not destroyed. A lot of Polish settlers happened to show up there, and it actually was a, was a relatively prosperous city. Hmm. uh in in post war poland hmm. so you do have some exceptions of course it is, it is quite uneven as you move across but generally yeah things look pretty bad um in these uh former
0: uh german territories under polish administration mm-hmm. just very quickly so, so some of these expellees uh well, they they get the opportunity to go look at it again to go look at the yes. heimat um what what do they see and what do they how do they react to what they see
1: because I ended my study in 1970, which was the year that West Germany recognized the uh, oder naisa border for all intents and purposes, um, I only look at these trips up through 1970, even though this is part of a much larger uh, story. Um, it became possible for Germans, to, West Germans to begin to visit these lost territories in the mid-1960s amid the Khrushchev thaw in the Soviet Union. And... Um, this was a surprise to me, uh, just how many managed to go back. You actually have um, thousands of West Germans who, through various means uh, that would take too long to go into, managed to go back and, and visit their old uh, homelands. And, and on and off again then over the coming years, all the way up to 1970, they, they managed to go. And their, in, their intention is never to meet the Poles who live there now. They have no interest when they go to meet the Poles. Their interest is, I want to see the old church. Is it still standing? I want to see my old house. What's become of my house? What's become of my town? It was a very intimate uh, local um, story that was very personal. Um, If the local population came in at all, it would be, are there any Germans who still live here? However inevitably, they did generally interact with the Polish population. It would often be as simple a situation as uh, you go back to look at your old town, you visit the old house, the old house uh, is looking kind of run down, you're not really um, not really happy to see it in that condition. The church, well, you know, it's it's not a Protestant church anymore, it's Catholic now, and things are really changing. And you go to look in the cemetery and all of a sudden a guy calls over your shoulder, hey, what are you doing here? In German, in perfect German. And you turn over, uh, you look over your shoulder and it's, you know, the local uh, Catholic priest. And he says, well, why don't you come over and let's talk? You're the old Germans who used to live here, you know. Um uh, I learned my German as a forced laborer in under Nazi Germany, and uh, but now we can communicate because the Germans almost never knew uh, Polish, and there would be this amazing interest uh, in this uh, case uh, on the side of the Poles for what was this place before. Hmm. What was this? What what is its history? We don't know. We just showed up here. We we were often dropped off here, and this uh, this is where we're supposed to make our home. What is this place? And um, the expellees would tell them stories about what it had been, and they would also then um, ask questions about how things had changed. And sometimes you actually even found real friendships that would emerge from this. Germans would sometimes actually enter into the old apartment building where they lived or the old house and meet the Poles who lived there, and you would get this situation where these expellees L.E.s would mail blue jeans to their new Polish friends from (laughs) West, and the Poles would give them little mementos from the the property, right? I don't know what this uh, lamp is, what the history of this lamp is. Do you want to have it, right? I mean, you could take these mementos back. It was not always uh, all sunshine, right? Um, You had cases where the Poles uh, let the dogs off on the Germans. You had cases where the Germans stole things without asking the Poles for permission. Um, But nonetheless, you have... this interchange, this interaction occurring in the height of the Cold War at a time when these borders are not supposed to be uh, permeable. And what did they take home with them? These expellees took home with them the idea that these territories are absolutely uh, not the places where we used to live. They have very much changed. Sometimes they said, I'll never go back again. Other times they said, you know, I'm going to keep going back. You know, I can go back and visit. I can sometimes take vacations here. And after the 1970s, uh, by the 1970s, as the border uh, controls loosened significantly, you had individuals as well, like my uh, uh, Silesian that I met in Wrocław in Breslau in, in uh, 2005, who had been going back since the 70s and, and liked to go on vacation in the old Heimat. I'd like to go hiking in these hills where I used to go hiking. I'd like to see things that I knew from my childhood so that you are actually a tourist in the old Heimat, where you're seeing how it has changed, sometimes appreciating how the Poles are now, by the 1960s, starting to fix things up, starting to, um, to, to actually develop their own tie to the landscapes. And especially by 1990, with the end of the Berlin Wall, things really begin to improve in these territories and transit becomes much easier. And this story of travel, this long-term history from the 1950s up through the present day, um, is a story that I'd like to tell to much greater extent in a future project that I'm planning to um, to move forward on. Well, that's uh,
0: a, that's a good segue right there because we're uh, yeah. we've almost run out of time. Yep. So uh, let me ask you our traditional final question on um, new books in history, yeah. and that is: What are you working on now? What is your next project?
1: Well, the project I just mentioned is um, is sort of imagined as uh, my third major project. I mean, the book, um, which we're talking about today, is my first project, the dissertation that was then revised and became the book. Um, I'm here right now working on the second project, which I'll mention momentarily. Uh, but first, uh, this third project, because it ties in so well with this one, this is really my intention to return uh, to Silesia, to return to these expellees, and Tell what will hopefully be a comparative history uh, of transborder interchange um, throughout the entirety of the Cold War and after hmm. um, looking at uh, individuals based upon uh, gender, male versus female experiences, Protestant versus Catholic, look at the nobility, look at Jewish individuals who went back to visit these territories, looking at um, East Germans versus West Germans, um, examining what do they have in common in these narratives, also what things are are different, and what can this tell us about how Europeans, Central Europeans sought to move on in the aftermath of all of these upheavals that remade the the face of of East Central Europe. So that's sort of a future project that will be based in large part also on uh, my own private archive I built up in the midst of my dissertation research, I put advertisements in these expelli newspapers asking people to just um, send me materials from travel experiences. And I was, I was amazed um, to receive uh, over 90 um, submissions from people in their 80s. The average age was about 85 of people mm. sending me often original documents that I would actually copy and send the originals back of um, original Diaries of uh, of excursions to these territories, mm-hmm. photographs, uh poems, memoirs, uh, just about everything, because they're dying out, and their children almost never have any interest. And this crazy American <laughs> who's doing research <laughs> <at> the Institute of artwork seems to be interested in story mm-hmm. and everything. So that's. But most of these materials stemmed from the 1970s, the 1980s, from periods outside the realm of the study I was doing. Some of the materials came from former East Germany, which was also for uh, reasons of concision outside the realm of, uh, of what I had done. So that's a, uh, a more long-term project. What I'm doing right now, I'm, um, I was very uh, excited to get a Humboldt uh, grant uh, to do a year of research right now um, in Germany uh, for a completely different project. I decided that. It would be really good to move in a, in a, in a new direction in post-war, uh, Central European history to, to broaden myself and, and enter into other historical questions that had fascinated me. So I'm seeking, uh, to compare the history of city planning and architecture, uh, in reconstruction in three cities that had been part of this interwar German space that were then rebuilt under three different regimes. Uh, Breslau, uh, Polish Wrocław is one of those cities. Uh, That comes from my first project. But then uh, Leipzig in East Germany and Frankfurt am Main in West Germany. Those are the other cities. They were all about the same size. Uh, The uh, outbreak of the Second World War, they all had very similar, we'd say in German, Bausubstanz, the same sort of architecture, the same sort of history because they were all old uh, trading cities along the same um, medieval trade route, the Via Regia. And they were all largely destroyed to the same extent in the midst of the war uh, and so this intersection of course of post-war ideology uh, and the co- very comparable need to somehow create a new identity in mortar and stone after the Nazi Reich uh, is the basis of what I'm uh,
0: what I'm examining now well I wow. wish you uh, great luck with both of those projects. Uh, and when you finish them, please come back on the show. Uh, let me say that today mm. we have been talking to Andrew Demchuk and uh, about his really terrific book, The Lost German East, Forced Migration and the Politics of Memory, 1945 to 1970. I really enjoyed our conversation a lot. I learned a lot. So uh, let me say to you, Andrew, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast and all the podcasts on the New Books Network, thank you very much, and I hope that you have a great week.